Welcome to the very first episode of the Degenerate Art Podcast. I'm your host, Mick Parsons. This podcast features artists talking about their art, their process, life, and the world. We took the name for our podcast from the Third Reich's name for art that contradicted Hitler's Aryan ideal. And this included art by and about Jews and blacks, and nearly all the art from the modern period, artists like Picasso and Matisse. This first episode features poet and translator George Eklund. You'll find a link to some of his work in the liner notes. Thanks for listening. maybe a good place to begin is uh, you and I have talked before about how you, about your association with and, and your connection to the work of, of Thomas Merton. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, Merton's an early influence on me, uh, not only as a Catholic, but as a poet. He's a great teacher, I mean, uh, an inspiration. Uh, and I, I keep, he's one of those 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 figures I keep coming back to. I mean, I have his books within sight right now from uh, bookshelves. And I like to go go to Merton regularly or I go back to him because he's a great teacher and a great model. And, you know, the more I write and the more I, I explore my my role, my identity as a poet, the more, again, I, I, I think I draw a lot of influence, a lot of inspiration from, from Merton. And I'm more and more attracted to this notion of uh, the poet as a kind of Trappist, as a kind of monk, um, a kind of hermetic figure. Uh, you know, someone who's a Trappist monk believes that even if no one knows I exist, or even if I don't publish or make the headlines, even if I'm not paying taxes or uh, campaigning politically, if all I do is cut wood, raise a garden, pray and sing, I still make the world a better place. And for me, I believe, I believe a lot of that applies to the poet because the poet's not going to have a wide readership, uh, nor uh, kind of function, at least in a visible way or in a kind of a dramatic way, a dramatic way as, as, a, uh, as a kind of shaker or mover in culture or society. But still, I have this belief, and I don't think I, I could continue as a poet if I didn't believe that I sit here at my desk, I write my, my work, I send it out, and the world is made better. And maybe even I am made better by doing it, too. Uh, Merton is just uh, fascinating. Uh, he's also a heck of a good poet and, and uh, a fine uh, religious thinker and, and a great inspiration. It's too bad he died uh, as soon as he did because I think he was knocking at the gates of some very interesting connections between Catholicism and Buddhism. Absolutely, he made some very, some very interesting connections there. Yeah. Um, do you do you think 
And and I noticed this some in, in in your work through the through the years. How do you how do you how does being Catholic or does it inform your work? Do you feel like that that has something to do with how you write or, or why you write or? I'm discovering more and more about that connection the older I get because I, you know, I, I was inactive in the church for many years through my uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s, um, but I've come back to it. Uh, this this uh, flawed and, and wondrous uh, institution. Uh, some might even say damned and wondrous uh, institution, but. Uh, it's something I continue to uh, to discover. Why why are there have been of course plenty of examples of poets, painters, and others who have even converted to Catholicism, gone, been attracted to it. Um, I can see where an artist would be generally, if not seduced, then certainly attracted to or kind of magnetized by Catholicism with all of its ritual. It's it's. Of course, it's art history, it's, it's turbulent struggles socio-politically, and it's grandeur, and it's spectacle. Uh, uh, I know Laura, my, my spouse, who's a painter, began her conversion to Catholicism when we were in Italy, and we were in uh, Florence for two weeks. And uh, it was it was spending time in the cathedral and going to mass that turned her very dramatically toward Catholicism. Right now, she's more of a Catholic than I am. <laughs> well, there's no doubt like a convert. You know? yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, what's it like being married to a, a painter and a, and a poet? She's also a published poet. Yep, it's it's pretty wonderful, and. Probably something I wouldn't have been ready to do or to take on when I was, you know, as a younger man in my 20s or 30s. Uh, I was always afraid of getting too close to another creative, you know, uh, person. Uh, but maybe the time was right when I when I met up with her because my maybe my ego was kind of tamed or filtered and, and I was more sure of who I was. But no, it is terrific. We share studio space here in this lovely country home with a great uh, acreage around us, pasture and, and woods. And uh, our studio is our, it's our sanctuary. It's our temple. It's filled with books, paintings, and uh, lots of space, great light, great northern exposure through wide windows. And uh, a lot of quiet. It's attached to the house. It's part of the house, but it's separate. Um, the laundry room is a kind of buffer between us and the uh, the, the lovely uh, the lovely chaos of family life. But she and I, as much as we can, spend. It's what's a, what's a great treat is to, to to share the space with her while she's painting or writing, while I'm writing. Uh, I never. I never imagined uh, such a thing could happen, but uh, we actually work very well together. Um, whether we're both writing or whether she's painting and I'm writing. And uh, it's really a kind of a ballet. It's, 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 
we actually interrupt each other occasionally in, in these kinds of graceful ways. And if someone doesn't want to be interrupted, they just ignore the other person and keep on working. That's understood. It's inspirational. Her work is hanging all around the, the, the studio. So I get great visual, psychic, emotional uh, stimulation and support from being there in her process as she's painting. It's like being part of a miracle. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk a little more about, about your process. Because, I mean, I, you know, uh, I've been uh, around your work for a long time and uh, around your process for a long mm -hmm. time. And, and your process is actually, I think, a little unique to a lot of other uh, writers that I know. And uh, yeah, um, probably when I when I entered graduate school uh, about uh, let's see, that was at Iowa, right? Right. Um, eight, 1987. Uh, I came under the influence of some really remarkable teachers in the rhetoric department because I was a, a graduate assistant teacher. And uh, my mentor was a woman named Cleo Martin who really got me indoctrinated into the, into the, the kind of the formalities of writing as a process. And that quickly informed my teaching. Uh, of undergraduates in, in the essay and helped clarify and define my own process as a writer. It's now to the point where more and more, uh, ever more process is product and that's where I, I give myself. That's where I, that's where I dwell. Uh, as much as I can, lovingly and, and with great devotion <clears throat> in the process. Yes, I want to write great poems, but I don't let, the, I don't let that challenge dominate my, my creative consciousness. I can't, uh, but I've learned, and the, the, the older I get, the more, the more I'm able to uh, become a child and to give myself over to the, the realms of play. Um, and for me, that's what process is, especially for the poet, for the creative writer. It's play without worry or concern for evaluation, judgments. And that's very hard to, to <laughs> as one becomes a, a, a formal adult, writer having struggled to learn all of the good manners and and postures of of good English to let go of that as a concern and to release oneself into the uh, into the wildness you know of creation uh, it's not easy to do it's not easy to, for the poet to do it and it's not easy for the for the teacher of writing to convey that to students as well, to be released into language. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very much a process guy. And uh, it's, it's really complements my whole constructivist 
notion of what education is and what art is and how things were made. Uh, and it's not, it's, it's kind of out of favor, if anything, these days. Yeah. But uh, I, it's what I've come to be. Sure. And, you know, when you, when you talk about, you know, constructivism, that's sort of, you know, that's this idea that, you know, you build the class from the, the ground up and you work with the students to create the class and write the text. And oh, yeah. That was how you always did it. And I would imagine that that, uh, yeah, it's not very popular. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to objectify that and, and turn it into a standardized test. Well, it's impossible. <laughs> I mean, and that's, it's, it's my, my life as a writing teacher and as a poet just continued to, uh, well, I stopped, just recently stopped teaching uh, at the academy. But uh, for me, one of the great joys has been able to integrate and to marry my, my pedagogy as a writing instructor and my work as a creative writer. And, uh, you yeah, know, it's, it, for me at this point, there's a kind of communion there that in my last, you know, you know, couple decades of teaching really gave me a lot of, of kind of buoyant joy because I felt every time I taught writing or engaged myself with student writing, I felt I was learning the process myself again and again. Well, you just recently retired. Like, you just taught your last class last week, I think. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So is it is it is it uh, too soon to to ponder how retirement is affecting your your writing process? Is it? I don't know. I mean, something new has started. I mean, I uh, and and it's been really joyful, really good. I do miss the classroom. I always will. Uh, that's that's where I was always most at home in the classroom and in the studio. Um, it's, it's a big change in, in as far as, you know, handling one's time, you know, as the central resource. Uh, it's mostly good stuff happening as far as I can tell. I, I spend a lot more time reading and studying Spanish and working on translations, getting introduced to new poets in other languages, especially Spanish, um, continuing with my own work. And it's just kind of uh, taking the old straw broom and just kind of sweeping things away and saying, okay, now you have this time. And I'm still, you know, relatively young and healthy and, and, uh, I've got a number of projects that are already, you know, in, in, in progress that I'm now going to be able to pursue uh, uh, more uh, diligently. I've got uh, a press in Mexico that's in the process of bringing out a book of my poems in a bilingual edition. And I've been uh, involved with a, an important poet in Mexico translating his work. His name is Mario Bojorquez. And we're working on publishing an English edition of his award-winning book, uh, El Deseo Postergado, The Delayed Desire. Nice.
Yeah. So I mean, everything's everything's looking very fine as far as the transition from us being a state employee to uh, <laughs> a, a, <laughs> the lyric poet who's truly uh, released into the field. Yeah. You know, it's it's. I've always kind of wondered. It's interesting because. You know, you're this guy, you're this Long Island guy who ended up in mm -hmm. Eastern Kentucky. Yes. And so much is being made now of sort of like, you know, and it, it, I guess it goes through moods like, you know, regional writers and Kentucky writers mm -hmm. and, and all that. And mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, you've been, you've lived here 27 mm -hmm. years. 28. 28 years. Yeah. And, uh, and you've embraced it I think as much as anybody can and I think it's embraced mm -hmm. you as much as it, as, as it can embrace anybody mm -hmm. but uh, do you ever find it strange still that you're just like I mean because I mean you, you live out here in this gorgeous space but you're 10 minutes from the interstate right. 45 minutes from an airport right you know how do you how does that work and about 15 minutes from from the nearest pizza. <laughs> That's also important. Um, you know, it's I've I've really treasured my good luck at, at having landed in Eastern Kentucky, and. When I first moved here, what I what I what I learned very quickly because I knew Chris Offit in in graduate school, so he helped kind of get me oriented. And uh, what what I quickly learned was to keep my mouth shut, and not just because <laughs> of those New York diphthongs and vowels, but to listen, because I knew I was coming into a region, a world that is very complicated. I read James Still's uh, River of Earth before I came, and I think I read uh, a couple other books. But I knew through through Offit, through my readings, that I was coming into a world that was very self-contained and very complex. So I was determined to keep my mouth shut, and even uh, quite ready not to write about it, or through it, or from it, or toward it, sure. because uh, this is a very complicated, and rich, and, and lovely, and terrible place. And uh, I've spent nearly three decades just observing and, and, and listening. My students have taught me a lot. It is very strange to me. I mean, once, maybe if you grow up in, in Wyoming, you're always a Westerner. Maybe if you grow up in Fort Myers, you're always a Floridian in your heart. I don't know. There, in a lot of ways, I'll always be a New Yorker. I just can't completely flush that whole ethos out of my my system, however yeah. many times I wish I could, but uh, it's there. And, but you know, for a poet to find oneself a kind of eternal or perpetual foreigner, it's 
is really kind of a, a valuable, if not wondrous and, and lovely thing. No, I don't fit here in a lot of ways. Even though I've raised kids here, I've married, I've worked, I've, I've been embraced by these wonderful extended families that I married into um, and have, have gained a wealthy life, truly a, a wealthy life. But I am still an outsider. And I think that, I think a poet especially the, the lyric poet, you know, uh, values that and recognizes that in, in him or herself. And says, you know, I really can't be a part of anything. I mean, Keats would, you know, whether it's John, from John Keats to Charles Simic, they all say the same thing. Yeah. If you come to me, if the village comes to me and asks me to uh, get on board, I'm sorry, I can't. I'll be in the grave. I'll be in the graveyard talking to skulls and writing poems. <laughs> so it's been ideal in a lot of ways. People talk of Appalachia and the Southern Highlands as America's third world. Well, yeah, but don't let yourself be romanticized by that either, right. because we've got many third worlds in our in our own country. But, yeah, it's just, it's a poet's paradise along the way. because it's gorgeous. It's, it's, it's pastoral and, and geographically dynamic. The people, the language is extremely rich, richly layered. I mean, there are linguists who come to... Uh, the, the Southern Highlands to study language because we're the repository of so much Elizabethan diction that's still alive and hasn't died out. And a lot of tradition, too. I mean, there's there's a lot oh, of God, language yes. tradition in part of the country. And I think, you know, a part of relating to my, I think my students really get creativity and, and the whole process because so many of them grow up with uh, storytellers around the dining room table or uh, mandolin players on the front porch, uh, wood carvers, uh, musicians, and they get art for art's sake. And again, I'm generalizing, but that's been my experience. And I think that's another reason why students have well, I've connected with students so easily here and why it's, it's been true, vice versa. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, Eastern Kentucky is uh, it's a perfect place for a poet in a lot of ways. Um, it's completely American and it's completely foreign all at once and terribly complex. And the people in New York and L.A. have no idea. They, they can send their news people down here with their cameras and do another photo shoot. Going up into Muddy Gut Holler in, in uh, Floyd County or come up here to Carter County and take some pictures and do a, do a sad story. But they don't get it. They're not going to get it. What is it you think they don't get when they come here? how contrasts can live side by side and integrated into each other. 
if you really want to drive around Appalachia, you'll 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 pass by some real poverty, some scary poverty, and then a quarter of a mile down the road, run into a two hundred thousand dollar house, and then another half mile, a big old cattle farm with you know fifty thousand dollars worth of animals out there. There's, I mean, I'm not an economist, and I, it's not my field, but there's a lot of money around here, and there's a lot of poverty, and the the, uh, the tensions between those two. And this may be a, again, it's not my field, but this may be a southern trait in, in general, mm. where poverty and wealth, where uh, races. Uh, live in close pro proximity, live kind of integrated with each other, as opposed to maybe other places. This episode of the Degenerate Art Podcast is sponsored by Social Abundance Marketing. From social media coaching and training to workshops and consulting, Social Abundance Marketing can help you transform your business's online presence. Check out Social Abundance Marketing at socialabundancemarketing.com on their Facebook page, on their Twitter feed, or LinkedIn page. Social Abundance Marketing, where social media is as colorful as your personality. You said something a couple minutes ago. That, that Do you think of yourself as a, as a lyrical poet? You said something about being out here is, is yeah, good for... I mean, I think, I mean, if I had to be kind of categorized, if I had to be kind of saddled with anything I suppose that would work I thought I'm not terribly interested in ideology or sociology or any of the the kind of arguments that that some poets take on uh, I'm interested in language and I think that that whole movement toward toward the language as it's kind of a modernist you know temperament language as the real subject of of the modern poem or the postmodern poem. Yeah, I'm attracted to that. Um, and if I do have an ide ideological agenda or kind of a personal confessional agenda or any of that stuff that we find in, in a lot of great poets in America, uh, it's going to be probably pretty abstracted and, and, uh, and made uh, if not conceivable, then at least freshly invented through wordplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that I've noticed about your your work over over the years that I've I've had the pleasure of reading it is that it over time it has gotten more abstract, like increasingly abstract. Yeah. it's abstract, but it's like it's it's still very focused and specific at the same time. How do you? What, That's rewarding to hear, because. <laughs> The, the more you work in abstraction, the, the, you, you realize where you're giving up. I mean, it's like being in a little boat by yourself and pushing away in a dark bay from the shore and, and easing yourself away from the harbor lights with these two little oars and knowing that, you know, you're not going to, you're, you're out there alone and pursuing a very distinct and, and perhaps hermetic, perhaps you know, obscure relationship with language in the world. 
but there you go. You ease away from the shore. Um, what was your question? Well, I just, I, I just, it was more of a comment, like, you know, how, how does abstraction play into into your process, yeah. and into how you, yeah. how you approach the work? Well, my influences, you know, explain a lot. When I came under the under the influences of the Spanish surrealists. Uh, starting with Neruda and Cesar Vallejo and uh, the gang, um, Garcia Lorca. I mean, it, it rearranged my relationship with with words. I was so struck down, especially by. You know, Neruda is so joyous. I mean, anybody can get him, but but to get submerged into the into the arcane weirdness of of Garcia Lorca and and Vallejo, I was done with. I, I ju it would just took me away. I became intoxicated with with those poems, and and I never aspired to write like them, but. Certainly got inspired to re, re, retrain in, in Spanish and get back in with Spanish and, and study and read it so I could understand them better. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a major crossroads that I think a lot of American writers have to make. Uh, you know, am I... Am I... Uh, you know, what is my loyalty toward the the straight linear narrative um, as opposed to bending and abstracting things? And it's, that's, that, that, that tension has been acted out in America since 1900 mm. and still being acted out. Uh, it's fascinating. So you have poets as disparate as John Ashbery and... Uh, Charles Bernstein, language abstracted, nonlinear poets, right. um, contrasted with uh, W.S. Merlin or C.D. Wright or uh, Sharon Olds, Carolyn Forche, um, Marie Howe, great poets, but very linear, very narrative, and and you know, uh, of a different aesthetic orientation. It's all going on at once. Mm -hmm. Now, the, I, I don't even know if there's a great battle over it. It's, it's, and I, I don't know how antagonistic the camps are at this point, but people, people find their way toward those aesthetic realms, and they tend to camp out there. Part of my ambition has been to kind of rove from camp to camp, and to uh, to experiment with integrating both the linear and the nonlinear, mm -hmm. it's been my big project for a couple of decades now. Sure. So I'm so I'm I'm delighted when you might have met when you say that you find the poems increasingly abstracted, but and yet still somewhat accessible or uh, able to be surveyed. Well, I, I think there's something about your work that, and, and I guess, I mean, I've been reading your work for a long time. I mean, you and I have known each other 
You're a fine reader. 25 yes. years. Yes. Uh, I've known you almost as long as I know my wife. Well, <laughs> well. you know, but it, it, there's something, even though your work has changed over the years, it got more abstract. I, I always feel like there's this, this arc of the whole thing. Like I see, mm -hmm. you know, there's still some common themes that come in and out of your work. Really? And, yeah. and, uh, and that isolation plays heavily in almost all of it. Really? Um, even going back to uh, that first chapbook of yours that I, I, I gave to that girl in New Orleans trying to get laid. <laughs> uh, Gone West of Southern Highway, maybe? No, that was uh, uh, Sorrows of the King. Oh, it's yeah. the one where the, right. the that painting there was the cover. Right, the one uh, Ron Whitehead did with yeah. in uh, Louisville. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm very interested in the isolated self. Um, the isolated self as, you know, the heroic being, the sick being, uh, the suffering creature, and the, uh, the loving creature. Um, and I sense that even as we're, we're kind of inundated with, you know, public thinking and public existence, I think that we're still, we still walk around in these isolated brains. And maybe through language, we might, uh, we might bridge the, the abysses, the multitudinous abysses <laughs> that, uh, that exist between us. And that's also a very modernist perspective. Oh, yes. And it's a very romantic perspective, too. You know, the idea <laughs> that, well, you know, I'm alone and I'm pretty much a genius and nobody really knows it, but I know it and the angels who talk to me at night know it and uh, we're all happy about it. <laughs> and if you don't get it, well, sorry. <laughs> I'm up in my attic um, burning my last sheaf of poems so I could stay warm and uh, life is great. I just wish I had a bottle of wine. Wash it all down with. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm 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 very attracted to that whole I mean, I was when I was 18 years old. Sure. And I still am. Uh, great way to great way to go. <laughs> <laughs> and it's you know that that sort of romantic uh, uh, value. I mean, it, it it informs everything. It's never died. I think it's always been there. You know. I mean, going to any art period. There's always the, the modernist is always with us. The romantic is always with us. Has been from the beginning. Thank goodness. Absolutely. They're not the greatest of citizens. No. <laughs> As you know. Right? <laughs> Thank God for that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they're absolutely necessary. And I know you're interested in this whole series about the role of art in our culture and the artists in society. And uh, I think it's a very, I think it's a tough time. Yeah. Um, 
I'm not terribly worried about the survival of the artist, whether it be the, you know, the ballerina or the painter or the, uh, uh, the sculptor or the, the composer, the guitar player, whoever he or she is, wherever they are, whatever they're doing. That's never going to stop. It can't. It started, you know, 40, 50,000 years before Christ. What was that piece I was looking at? One of Laura's art books. That old, the, one of the first sculptures, the the Venus of mm, so tiny, well, tiny six-inch sculpture they found in uh, Germany of a of a female figure. It's very old, forty-five thousand years before Christ. So we've been. We've been sculpting and painting the walls on caves, the, the, the cave paintings, 30,000, 40,000 years before Christ. Yeah. I mean, this is inherent. I mean, it's people worry about funding from the government and, and, you know, how many people are attending poetry readings as opposed to national football, you know, games. Or the, the what what uh, a quarterback makes as opposed to an assistant professor who publishes a little book of poems. I don't give a crap about that. I, I I used to, but I think the stakes are bigger than all of that. I think that's a summative kind of uh, grasp of things. Uh, it's there. There are there are forces. There are urges and consciousness levels, you know, beyond all that, that crap. The, the, the urge to mark the surface, right? Yeah. Whether it be a, a dusty patch or a stick or, uh, you know, a commute, computer screen yeah. or the, the stone wall of a cave or uh, a canvas. A piece of paper smuggled into a jail. I mean, it's it's inevitable. It's unstoppable. Which is not to say it doesn't need care and 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 attentiveness, you know, or which is not to say it shouldn't be honored. It damn well should be honored, and often is not, and is often, if anything, consequenced. Um, I'm about to start a new memoir by uh, the African writer, the Nigerian writer uh, Chinua Achebe, hmm. and uh, I know what I'm going to get there will be more about the struggle of the individual artist against a uh, you know, political regime, sure. against political oppression. Yeah. So th those tensions are not going to go away. They've been there from the beginning. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, you know, one of the things that I hear, and because and, I'm always kind of running in between these circles of, of street and performance poets and, like, slam poets and the spoken word guys and, you know, the more meditative, <coughs> hermetic sort of uh, poets. And, and there's always this, there's always there's this weird tension between the two that always, mm -hmm. always kind of confuse mm -hmm. me. And part of it has to do with how they view the poet as 
a political animal. Because mm -hmm. there are those that say that, that poets are obliged, like if you, there, you know, Ron Whitehead is really right. good for standing up and saying the poet needs to stand up and, right. you know, and, and do this prophetic thing. Mm -hmm. and, and He and even I, looks like a prophet. God love him. It's the tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and, and he's a sweet guy. Yeah. But I, you know, I just, I, I wonder sometimes, like, why do we all have to, like, is that, do you think a poet, is a poet a political figure, and is that, is that a place for a poet to mm -hmm. be? Yeah, of course. I mean, the minute you make a mark on a piece of paper, the minute you write a word, uh, it's a pol political act, whether you intend it to be or not. I mean, it, it is a, call it a socio-political act, because the self is revealed, <coughs> the self is articulated, um, or something's articulated. Um, I think even if that piece of paper is then folded up and put in a trunk for 50 years, I think it's still a socio-political act, unavoidably. Now, some, some poets, as you say, will celebrate that whole notion and say, well, now I'm not going to put it in a trunk. I want to put it on the Internet, or I want to put it on my blog or my website, or I want to submit a book of poems to this competition, or I want to submit my poems to the new frickin' Yorker, <laughs> and I want to be heard, damn it. Of course. And then there, there's the poet who says, oh, no, I couldn't. I couldn't possibly. I'll write, write these things and fold them up. Well, let's think about Emily Dickinson. Right? <laughs> oh, she sent her stuff out too. So, I mean, maybe in the future, or maybe right now, maybe it's going to come down to, um, you know, language users and what they're doing. Um, I, th you know, I'm completely open. I'm completely open to both both stances. You know, the poet as kind of hermetic, arcane wizard. The poet as uh, a Chilean legislator to the world. You know, yeah. Let it ride. Let the good times roll. There's room and space and time for all of it. Now, the critics, the people who want to gra grapple for power whether they be uh, uh, academics or publishers or hustlers, they, they'll play that game about, well, you know, that's rap or that's lyric or that's street poetry, that's bar poetry, and this is, this is elevated poetry, this is better. That's, that's, a, that's a, the, the, a real artist knows that that's, that's a circular, uh, nearly meaningless discourse. It's uninteresting. The real artist, the real lover of language will say, let me read. I'm ready to read. I want to be a, I want to be a 300 pound reader. <laughs> Give it all to me. Because it's all important. It's all part of who we are. And, and if there's any lesson that I think modernism, postmodernism, and our, modernism and our, our, our development has taught us is that 
you know, the ranking, it, you know, the ranking, um, the evaluation, or the judgments, rather, the rankings and the judgments of who's number one and who gets the prize and who doesn't, who's better than, than everybody else, is, uh, is an, un an uninteresting uh, argument. So the 300-pound reader, huh? I like that phrase. That's a yeah, phrase. I've, I've always, I mean, I've, I, tell my, I tell my students uh, early on, whether it's creative writing or uh, composition or whatever, I will look them on the first day, I'll look at them on the first day, and I'll, I'll, I, what I've taken to saying to them is, look, I'm going to tell you one of my secret ambitions for this class and for our time together. I want to be the best damned reader ever had. And by that I mean the reader who understands and appreciates what you're trying to do and can value it and can also actively engage with the work and maybe give you the kind of conversation you need to help you discover what it is you're trying to do. Furthermore, I like to imagine I might be, I might even be a reader who could imagine what it is that you don't yet know you want to write, or the reader who can read the text on the edge of the, the paragraphs or the verse lines, the writing that isn't there yet. And maybe I can help you and find your way toward that. Uh, so yeah, I think you know, one of my favorite uh, Latin American writers, Roberto Bolaño, uh, said uh, succinctly, uh, reading is more important than writing. And this is a guy who wrote some big, important novels. Reading is more important than writing. They're intertwined, of course. Yeah. One is to read is to write, to write is to read, obviously. Yeah, that's one of those things. Every once in a while, someone will will ask me. It's like, well, how do I how do I be a better writer? And I was like, well, what are you reading? And not even that so much, but how much are you reading? You know, I'm, oh, yeah. I read four or five books at a time. Like I just they go on rotation, and right. I'm like, I leave, I don't leave the house without a book, right. and I don't, you know, I right. take two or three out with me when I travel. Right. Like it's just, right, you know. Well, if you and yeah, if you. If you aspire to write, and if, if that's what you do, what you want to do, you know, if that's central to, to who you are and what you do, you have to have a relationship with language. You need, a, you need an enriched, active, uh, growing relationship with language, the self, and the world around you, and maybe the cosmos, too. If you don't have the, if those relationships aren't active and kinetic and dynamic, it's going to be hard to, to stay in the conversation. It's going to be hard to join the conversation. Because if you look at any great literature, that's what's going on from the author. They are fully engaged with who, wh who or what the self is, who or what the, these words are and how they, how they work. And the relationship between the self and, and the world.
in the language. You can't write. You, and the beauty of reading is that it feeds all of that. Yeah. Right? I mean, you get to be, you get to read the words that came out of Dostoevsky's head. <laughs> you get to you get to travel along the the rolling s syntax of uh, Herman Melville. Imagine how great that is. I mean, it's like listening to Mozart or or Brahms. This is the music they heard in their brains, and now it's in my brain. <laughs> you know, and the, the the writer the writer feeds off of that for sure. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you like listening to podcasts about other folks in all walks of life, please wander over to Allidade and Audiomap, which is a podcast and oral history project. Allidade and Audiomap is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Degenerate Art Podcast. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share it around. Our next episode will drop in two weeks and feature storyteller Amanda Hay. The, the, the language, the language that you use, the description that you use, it's important to get it right. And I don't mean in excruciating detail, like was it 2 p.m. or 3 p.m.? It was afternoon. You know, let's just let's round it up on that one. This is your host, Mick Parsons. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you appreciate and support the artists wherever you live. <laughs>